1: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg um, for another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. Sorry for the long hiatus since I've been here, and thanks to Jack Butler, who just got back from the Boston Marathon, uh, for pitching in with Barry Strauss from Cornell. The reviews have been great. This week, we have a very exciting guest, and we have him in the studio, unlike last time where we had some um, technological issues. We have Tyler Cowen, who has a new book out called uh, Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Antihero, hero uh,
0: welcome, Tyler. Thank you. Hello. So how long has it been since your last book, just roughly? Well, it's complicated. I had a book come out last year, but I didn't write it last year. I had written much of it 20 years earlier and worked on it for a long time. The last book I wrote came out two and a half years ago.
1: Okay. It feels like you're much, your production schedule is much tighter than that because you've managed to get ideas into the bloodstream on a fairly regular basis and and we just had you on a podcast for the book fairly recently, and I was just wondering how you managed to do this. Um am going to ask you my favorite question to ask people who wrote books. What's your book about?
0: My book suggests that right now we are villainizing big business. That is a significant mistake. Big business has many under-heralded virtues. And what I do is just go through the evidence, the different critiques leveled at big business, and show uh, big business in America is actually doing a pretty good job. So... Um, it's not as monopolistic as we think. Big tech is not ruining our lives. For the most part, CEOs are not overpaid and so on.
1: Okay, we, We'll get to those various and uh, sundry uh, sub-arguments in just a second. The first thing, though, is hasn't it ever been thus? Uh, you can go back to Matthew Josephson's The Robber Barons. We've had this weird, at least for the last 100 or so, more 120 years, this obsession with demonizing big business or robber barons or the rich, isn't it sort of, is, is this one of these examples of nothing new under the sun in a sense?
0: I think it comes and goes in waves. So there's much more anti-big business rhetoric now than say even five years ago. Uh, young people often will poll as supporting socialism more than capitalism. They may not exactly mean that, but still I think it's a sign their understanding of big business is not really very evidence-based.
1: Right. So in big business, I mean, So I've looked at those socialist, uh, you know, support for socialism numbers a bit and if you look at, I think it's Gallup's trend line, it seems like support for, it's it's sort of binary. It's the analog to negative polarization in the sense that there are millions of Democrats who say they're Democrats because they hate Republicans and millions of Republicans who say they're Republicans just because they hate Democrats. It seems like whenever big business or capitalism is unpopular, socialism becomes more popular by default in a binary sort of scheme. But most of these young people don't actually know very much about what socialism
0: is, I would argue. That's right. But it's much more than that. So we have a president who tweets against CEOs, I think, for the first time ever. Uh, A lot of the right has swung against big tech. Yes, Uh, Practices that Facebook did, say, four years ago and were heralded by the New York Times now are villainized. So it's not just about young people. Elizabeth Warren has a more radically anti-corporate agenda than what we're used to. Bernie um, Sanders right now is arguably the Democratic leader for the primaries to come. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's right.
1: Um, so let's sort of start with from the beginning on the. I want to actually I want to, This is this is a bugaboo of mine. Um, uh, the I because one of the points that you make in the book that I like a great deal is that businesses are less likely to be cronyistic, save for the fact that human beings are likely to be cronyistic. That's right. right? Um, And there's this famous line from Adam Smith, I quote all the time, where he says, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. And lots of people on the left or the anti-business crowd love to quote that as proof of the evilness of big business. But what they leave out is where Smith goes on to say that it's impossible to prevent such things and the real danger is when the law tries to, because that actually encourages that tendency to form business coalitions and, and the like. So I, I guess part of my point is, isn't part of the real problem that the Warrens and the Sanders are proposing is that they're actually trying? The net result of what they're doing will lead to more crony capitalism, not
0: less? Uh, that's correct. As the state has more power over the economy, the gains to controlling that state or influencing it from business become greater. Uh, in terms of monopoly, in most sectors of the American economy, it's harder to raise prices than ever before. You're competing maybe against Walmart, Amazon, the whole internet. Now, healthcare is clearly an exception to that. Uh, but, but that's most, also
1: because of government involvement, right?
0: Yes, but not only. I think healthcare yeah. is a special case. Uh, it's hard not to regulate it at all. And once you regulate it, the costs go up and yeah. there's plenty of third-party payment. All right. So
1: when you say, if you say that big business is less monopolistic today... Most people, when they say monopolistic, they actually don't mean the classic case of what monopoly means. They mean that it has more control over their lives, that that that, there's, uh, that the system is rigged. It's sort of this amorphous thing. Can you just sort of walk through why, in fact, it's not as monopolistic as people think it is?
0: Well, again, <clears throat> if you think about the different goods and services you buy and you compare the choice you have today to the choice you might have had 20 years ago, Uh, In most cases, it's an order of magnitude greater today. There are today more national brands, so sometimes there are fewer companies, but typically in individual markets for particular things or on particular air routes, there's either more competition or an equal amount of competition to the past. So a lot of people just look at the national level and they see there are more big brands, which is mostly true, but at the same time, there's also more competition.
1: So, all right, so uh, let's move on to the the other argument about whether or not um, big tech is ruining people's lives or invading their privacies.
0: You actually, you argue that, that Americans don't actually care that much about their privacy? They care about some kinds of their privacy, but I think they're smart enough to realize the biggest threats to your privacy are your friends, family, acquaintances, peers, and colleagues, and not Facebook. So I think they have some concerns about online privacy. Those are mostly legitimate concerns that I think should be addressed. But the best way to get more people more privacy is to have people continue to move into cities and relatively anonymous suburbs. (laughs) And we're doing that. Tech is actually helping us do that. So for the most part, privacy has been going up, and the net effect of online life on privacy is positive, contrary to what you hear. But isn't there there something of a category
1: error somewhere in there in the sense that there's a great deal of social trust within the microcosm of the family and that so invasions about my privacy from my family i file in one part of my brain and invasions of my privacy from a cold and personal corporation based in palo alto or something i see completely differently and so i mean i, I take your point that friends and family are the biggest intrusions into privacy but that is there's sort of a social contract there that we view it we view those invasions differently than we do someone selling my data.
0: But it doesn't work that so well, that social contract. So uh, your data is out there. We're in the world of the internet. I don't think we're going back. Mm -hmm. Uh, The simple question, how much harm is being done right now by how your data is treated by the online world? uh, I don't see that as a massive negative in Mm -hmm. current American society. I'm much more worried about, say, facial surveillance. Right. Uh, I would consider legal or regulatory action against the spread of that. But in terms of what privacy violations actually harm you, that social contract amongst those who know you uh, doesn't always work that well, and people have rivals at work, or uh, just general gossip. And it's striking to me, the people who complain the most about online privacy, sometimes they want government to publish all our tax records online, (laughs) unbelievably, (laughs) or they don't seem interested in any other source of privacy violations. It's really directed against big tech and corporations.
1: Yeah. Why do you think on the right, uh, this is something I'm a, I'm a little fascinated by, on the right there's this move against big tech. I find, you know, all of a sudden, I I, I think I've been, with, with the exception of a handful of issues, fairly consistent in my sort of fusionist, conservative, libertarian views about a lot of these things. And and now there is this huge movement on the right to demonize big tech to want to bring back things like the Fairness Doctrine and all of that. I understand the left. That's a, There's a consistency on the left about these things. Right. right? Uh, where do you think it comes from on the right?
0: I think some of it's cultural. There's a sense, largely correct, that the big tech companies are staffed by relatively left-wing or politically correct employees. and uh, These companies are gatekeepers on platforms of a sort, and they're starting to make more decisions about what can be posted and what not can be posted. And some parts of the right are afraid they will lose that battle because companies in California and the nature of their employees. What I see on net is that online life has created a much greater diversity of voices, including on the right. Uh, Often ideas I don't agree with at all or can be quite (laughs) repugnant. Uh, But I don't think, you know, the right as a whole has anything to fear from this new online world, social media discourse. Quite the contrary.
1: So what would you, as a... If you, if you could wave your magic wand and be the policymaker about the privacy issues and whatnot, would you just err towards the status quo or the trend lines as they are now, other than the facial recognition stuff? Where, where would you want to intercede at this moment?
0: I've never seen a pro-privacy bill that I either liked or thought would actually boost privacy. So GDPR has been passed by the European Union. It raises costs for everyone. I don't feel it brings many genuine protections of privacy at all. Uh, It tends to entrench incumbents. Uh, I think this is an entrepreneurial opportunity for someone to come up with a better treatment of privacy. I do think uh, some kind of legal regulation is justified here, but you don't want it to stifle innovation, and it could be the sector is still changing so rapidly that for now we should just wait and let things settle in a bit more. But I, I don't want to dismiss the privacy concerns. I think there's a, a genuine worry there. But also, part of the solution would be if people
1: actually cared more. Because I, I kind of agree with you. Yes. I, I I I, care about violations of my privacy when they are inconvenient to me. <laughs> but otherwise, if I could have a perfect... And even the facial recognition stuff, I hate all the passwords. I hate trying to remember my passwords and losing my passwords. If my computer could just recognize my face and let me into all the websites I would want, I'm open to arguments for why that is a slippery slope kind of thing, but I actually would be in favor of it. But it seems to me that all these corporations are incredibly geared towards monetizing their consumers and giving them what they want. So if consumers actually cared more about the privacy issue, the corporations would be more responsive to it.
0: That's right. I think there's a potential external cost here. So when you're logging into your computer, it's a big benefit if that happens more quickly. Uh, but if we all can be tracked all the time, that information probably will fall into the hands of government, even right. if it's a deal with private companies. And I don't think we should be too naive about the fact that private and public sectors, uh, there's just a lot of cross-transmission over right. the medium and long term. So that's where a lot of my worry comes from. There's no completely private contract in this arena.
1: So, gosh, I can't remember the... It's a wonderful book, 20 years old, called Seeing Like a State. James Scott. Yeah. Great book. And it's one of those books that has just a, a, a core idea in it that has stuck with me for my entire... This idea that states want to make their populations more legible. Yes. Right? And it goes back to the invention of last names, goes through public schools, the creation of tax records. All of these things are so that the state can actually see its own people more clearly and therefore be able to organize and corral them in certain ways. Aren't a lot of the solutions to a lot of these problems to increase the distance, but to create more of a high? I would be happier if we had a high wall of separation, like we claim to do between church and state, if we had it between government and business. But that doesn't—the law enforcement function alone means that a lot of that data is going to get to the government pretty easily, pretty quickly, right?
0: That's right. And one of my big worries—you see in China today—there are some intersections. If you jaywalk. Uh, they take a fine out of your bank account right away and send yeah. you a text message, you know, maybe within a minute. And again, that has a certain efficiency, but I think it's more Terrifying. worrying than not. Because yes. <laughs> yeah, it will be abused.
1: Right, right. I remember seeing a, a clip about the CCTV cameras in England, and they had a guy, they had cops watching the monitors, and somebody in downtown Birmingham littered and the guy gets on a PA system and says hey pick that up from 100 miles away and to me that's big brother right there right, right. that that stuff i find very very creepy but uh, so I, i'm kind of with you on the privacy part of it i think it's a real issue but it needs to be thought through more and 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 and, and we should keep an eye on it but the the social media not being a problem i, I you make a lot of perfectly well taken points here but at the same time You look at these numbers about what's happening to teenagers who spend their time on screens. You look at uh, the way Facebook allows people to curate their lives, to make them seem so much happier than they really are, and and by extension, make other people more miserable. You're not particularly concerned about any of these things?
0: Well, social networks is a much more competitive arena than people often suggest. So in recent times, you've had the rise of Fortnite, millions and millions of people involved. Right. In addition to being a gaming site and much more, it's also a way to network socially. Simply email, sending people text messages, a uh, snap, uh, writing a blog is a way of social networking. It's what I do. Uh, calling people on the telephone. So it's not just... Which young there's... people barely know how to do anymore. <laughs> That's correct. But there's a reason for that. It's not very efficient. Yeah. So you have a lot of choice, and the where you get protections and where you don't... Uh, it's not exactly where I want us to be, but I do think it's best understood as users getting what they are demanding through a competitive process. I'm all for educating people to the notion that offline life is a lot more rewarding than you might think. And I agree with Roth that on average, we should, most of us spend a lot less time online. Yeah. So I'm all for that. But I think that's the right way to address it. In any new communications technology in human history, there's a lot of abuse at first. Norms need to adjust. I think we're in that position. But the idea that you address the problems of, say, the printing press or the radio by going after either the technology or the companies, say, that build radios, that doesn't make sense. It's about ideas
1: no, that that I that that part I agree with. I'm not a luddite. I don't want to smash the mills or any of that kind of stuff. But just to push back slightly on the idea that it's more efficient, I'm I'm not uh, that you know you say you said phone calls are, are are less efficient. I'm not entirely sure that's true. I remember I was I was in Washington as a young policy gnome at at the uh, during the golden age of the fax machine. Yes. And uh I could fax I had faxing skills like you wouldn't believe. And but one of the things and I remember my dad pointing this out to me was that faxes were incredibly popular with people in part because they were less efficient than phone calls. You could you your boss comes in and say, "Hey, you know, where do we stand with this account?" Say, "Well, I faxed them. I'm waiting for a reply." And my dad always used to say, "Look, just Pick up the phone and call them, find out the answer. But instead, it allowed you to say, "I've done my part, and I'm waiting for the other side." Email works a lot that way too. Sure, people. And, are, and I, I, what I, one of the things I worry about is, is that every culture is in some respect um, a reflection of the technology of its age. Uh, I, I have this argument all the time with conservatives who love intellectual history, like I do, that the automobile did more to change American culture than any idea that escapes some East German lab. Right, right. and. Um, I look at my own daughter, I look at her friends. The level of fear and anxiety about interpersonal communication is is legitimately worrisome to me. And you have you have these kids who are filled with anxiety about just calling someone and asking a question when they could just send a text or an email and then a way to response rather than actually deal with human interaction. And I think that will have knock-on effect. Again, I'm not proposing a regulation to fix it because I don't know what that regulation would be, but I don't think it's as sunny as necessarily you're you're making it out to be. Is that fair?
0: Well, if you look at social indicators for young people, such as teen pregnancy or most forms of substance abuse, they're actually down, especially for well-educated people. Uh, a lot of that, I think, is due to online life, mm-hmm. that rather than being out there making trouble, right. uh, you're doing things on the internet, and that is a mixed blessing. Teen suicide's up. Teen though. suicide is up, but it was rising before social media was a big thing, uh-huh. keep that in mind. Okay. I think there is a problem, especially with young women, maybe being more anxious or depressed because of social media. Uh, but America's young people, for the most part, uh, are doing pretty well while accepting Charles Murray's point that there's some kind of divide. But the people doing worst are actually the ones who are maybe on the Internet less, because there's still some partial digital divide, or not everyone has a smartphone. So again, if you look at the bigger picture, I don't think you should argue that online life is destroying today's young people. There's a bunch of very large benefits, and nonconformists can connect with people they couldn't have, so you're 14, you don't feel alone in the world anymore if you're weird. That's a major, major benefit. There are some costs, which I think we will address better over time. But I see people, especially in newspapers, focusing on the costs and not looking at the entire ledger.
1: No, I think that's fair. I mean, And I agree with you, it's uh, for uh, people with quirky, weird, esoteric obsessions you can find a sense of community that was once very difficult to do. And
0: that's most of us. People who are gay, for instance, sure. uh, finding the right partners or support communities, people who have been abused, uh, people who are immigrants, they want to connect with other Somalis or whatever. There are just so many areas where there's more community or more connection or less depression because of the internet yeah, and I, social media. You
1: know, and I agree with that. And I used to work for Ben Wattenberg, who's a sunny optimist, and, and I, I generally think that the... Obsession with only finding the the dark side of everything is a problem. But as a conservative, um, and not a cornucopiist or whatever you got, I don't. You are not a, one of those guys. But I believe, as a conservative, that there is no such thing in this life as a pure good that doesn't have a downside. I agree. And so the same thing that allows people who love to uh, study the War of the Roses have online communities, um, it also allows crazy racists to have a sense and have their view. It was one thing, if you were a pedophile in 19th century America, it was very difficult to find another pedophile to validate your views, right? Or if you were a crazy racist, 19th century America, you probably could find communities, but today, or 20 years ago, it was very difficult to find a place in the public square where you could talk about, you know, where you could denigrate Jews or blacks or whatever publicly. There is now a sense that a lot of those people can say, oh, wait, I'm not alone and have a sense of community. And that's a dangerous side
0: too, right? Online life, like radio, has been mostly a sudden change, not a gradual change. So the standard hayek burke arguments that we iterate and adjust and experiment, they don't quite apply. There's been a kind of revolution within the world of ideas. And I think it's in that realm of ideas, you know, we all really need to step up and, and make these things work better. So... It's a, it's scary when change comes all at once, right. and every now and then that happens. And for a while in the U.S., the 80s, 90s, it didn't really happen. It was just slow, gradual growth. Mm-hmm. And now you have a case, say, Facebook, uh, it seems the most shared articles are from Fox News. Mm-hmm. People will have different views of that, but obviously a lot of people just hate that. And there's an overturning of the previous balance and we all need to, to to reassemble and and change how we're doing everything in terms of communicating ideas. It's very unpleasant, and you see a lot of people you don't like, you know, maybe for good reasons, being elevated in status or having new opportunities. Uh, very hard to wrap your emotional arms around.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, there there are many people who I, I I'll say it. There are many people I do not like who have who have who have monetized a certain climate in ways that I find dismaying. That's right. Um, uh,
0: but the two, we have much, much broader reach. The two of us, because of the internet, sure. And that's how this podcast, in essence, will be consumed.
1: No, that's right. I, I think that's right. Let's switch gears. You, you. Um, I mean, you're not going to be burned at the stake, but you, you, uh, you do offer mild uh, criticism of Milton Friedman. Praise be upon him, um, and his views of. Uh, corporations being committed to sort of social justice or corporate responsibility. You think that um, CEOs should in fact care about
0: things other than pure the, the pure bottom line, right? Maybe not in every case, but if we have a capitalist system where there's different visions of the company, some view their sole goal to maximize profit and others, like John Mackey at Whole Foods, have a broader vision of social responsibility. And we have a kind of competition across different visions and forms. I'm all for that, and I feel Milton Friedman suggested a little too dogmatically that it was all just about profit maximization. And a social conscience in business, especially if it's sincere, it can in fact boost long-run profits. You attract more and better talent. People have a stronger sense of mission. That doesn't mean it's actually profit maximization anyway. It is a truly different intent, but I think that's fine. So... uh...
1: I'm sympathetic to that point of view, but I do think going back to what we were talking about before about why the right feels threatened by social media um, in a way that f- forces them to conclusions about business and regulation that they once would have considered re- repugnant. You have, you know, I'm a big fan of Joseph Schumpeter and, and and Irving Kristol and their arguments about the new class and about these the. These people who manipulate words and ideas in order to attack capitalism and to attack notions of, of you know, uh, classical liberal uh, social organization—they uh, tend to hold the commanding heights of the culture. And if you look at the social media account managers on, for I just got into a spat with the the social media account for Netflix the other day because uh, they were. Um, uh, saying that we really have to get rid of the term chick flick and that America is desperately in need of doing this and all these other people came rallying to Netflix's defense. That I think is one of the reasons why you have this antibody response on the right is that all of these institutions of major cultural power are joining in the sort of woke awakening of, of policing and demonizing people who disagree with them. And um, I'm not sure whether it's good or bad for the bottom line. We can get back to that in a second. But I'm also not sure it's necessarily particularly good for the country if, uh, if corporations think part of their business plan is to not stay in their lane, but instead virtue signal both for regulators and for the public um, in ways
0: that heighten social discord. Is that crazy? No, I don't think it's crazy. But first, keep in mind, a lot of those corporate decisions may well be good things, So if we stop calling them chick flicks, Uh I'm fine with that. I actually have a very weak minor preference Uh in favor of Netflix if they stop doing that. Uh I don't think it's the end of the world if we call them chick flicks. Uh, In terms of same-sex marriage, a lot of big companies were ahead of the government in a very positive and beneficial way. And I'm not sure they always just did it to maximize profits. I think some of the CEOs just thought this was the right thing to do. So some of it will be positive. I think some of it you will keep truly harmful or even violent voices away from the public sphere. But the general notion that right now we're having this this much more passionate, lustier debate about what is appropriate, uh, how should we use language, this is very common in American history. It's more like a lot of the 19th century. We came out of that fine. Over time, albeit slowly, we became a less racist nation. Uh, So I'm not sure why the right has to be so pessimistic about these dialogues. I understand the risk, but it's as if they're seeing all the downside and none of the upside.
1: No, I, I think that's fair. And some of the people who are most I'm not a huge anti big tech guy. A lot of the people who are most passionate about, you know, dismantling Twitter and going after Twitter really actually just want more freedom to say racist things. And I you know, I so I'm not gonna like join the parapets with them for that. But I I think there is a broader coalition of conservatives who just kind of feel they are already besieged by political correctness at every front. And this is a point I try to make to, to young conservatives all the time. There's a lot of nonsense in political correctness and a lot of pernicious nonsense in political correctness. But there is some significant percentage of it that is simply a society's way of trying to work out what constitutes good manners. Sure, And that part of political correctness I really have no problem with. If somebody wants to, you know, the example I always use is when African-Americans said we no longer want to be called Negroes. That is just a sign of respect to call people what they want to be called, and if that, I'm sure that seemed like political correctness. They may not have used the term back then, but that is a political correctness I can completely get behind. Um, You know, the the change in the language, which we should do a podcast on some point about how it's wrong to call someone a Jew, but you say they're Jewish. This was another one of these weird, subtle linguistic kind of things, but. The thing that concerns me about this, and I take your point entirely that this is an old American story, is that if you th- if you worry about the sort of Schumpeterian new class that manipulates language and uses it to undermine the existing system, sort of like Nietzsche's priests, you get into this. The, the problem is, is that they weaponize language. And it is not necessarily always a sign of trying to find uh, a new moral consensus about things because the desire is actually to constantly put the other side off balance and find excuses to, to demonize them. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on in the social uh, the social virtue signaling stuff that you get sure. from big corporations. And that does make me nervous.
0: Too many people's careers have been ruined or limited in, in bad ways. But there's a lot of pushback. So you look at the governor of Virginia, uh, Ralph Northam, who got in trouble for some things he shouldn't have done. But he decided he would stick with the job. And right. I think... One's best prediction of how this process will work out is a fairly optimistic one. And overall, even today, I think people are less racist than they were 20 years ago or less prejudiced. So uh, again, the case for extreme pessimism, I don't see. I do think it's a kind of wake-up call to a certain kind of progressive view, which was shared by many libertarians as well, that prejudice and racism simply diminish with the onset of time. And it's for a long time been, my view, a lot of racism just won't go away. It will take new forms, but it will be repackaged. And we're seeing that's true. But social media are largely the messenger of what has been a truth really throughout millennia. Yeah, I I, I, I hear you on that. At the same time, I mean, it's,
1: it's objectively true. America is a vastly less racist. You can look at the survey data where even 50 years ago, I'll get the numbers wrong, but we can put it in the show notes what the right numbers are. Huge majorities, 80, 90% of Southerners said that they would move out of their neighborhood if a black person moved into their neighborhood. We're not talking about 1920. We're talking about 1980 or 1970. Today, it's like 2% of Southerners say that, white Southerners, right? But if you listen to the rhetoric out there that is amplified enormously on social media, racism has gone down, but talk about systemic racism and the belief that America is an incredibly racist country has gone up. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know that social media is helping in that process. I'll just—I mean, I just—I I don't. Maybe you know the empirical data on this, but it just doesn't feel like the the sort of social justice warriors that get amplified on social media
0: are part of the solution. No, um, I agree. In but that. Twitter is not America, so our immediate peers on the left, we're especially sensitive toward because they're our counterparts in a way. But if you look, say, at the views of Black Americans mm-hmm. on racism. Uh, they certainly believe there's plenty of racism. I think they have a pretty accurate and reasonable assessment of where mm-hmm. things are at, much more than so-called you know white liberals might. Sure. And uh, that seems like a pretty healthy development. Yeah. So I mean, it's not that the whole world is going crazy. No, that's true. It's I mean it's the
1: the six tribes, the eight tribes, and it's white liberals and. And and cosmopolitan conservatives who are having these kind of fights in a lot of ways. That's right. right. All right. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't... Cause we were talking about Milton Friedman and the, the, the sort of corporate responsibility and social justice stuff. And one of my favorite essays is by Irving Kristol called, When Virtue Loses All Her Loveliness. Um, and he takes a swipe at Friedrich Hayek. And I'm not going to read the whole quote. We'll put the whole thing up in the show notes. But Hayek makes the case in the Constitution of Liberty that you have to disentangle the idea of a free society being a just society because the notion of a ju- uh, just society is enmeshed with these notions of merit, with these notions of everyone gets what they deserve. And Hayek's point, which I, I feel like I'm taking, bringing Cole's to Newcastle telling you what Hayek's point is, but uh, Hayek's point is, is that social justice is one of these concepts that invariably either means nothing or simply means what those in power want it to mean. And so if we impose this idea of merit on a free society and that we say a free society is also a just society, we are basically outsourcing what justice means to a subset of people who have a a self-interest in providing the definition for it. Irving, I'll get to what Irving Kristol says about that in a second, but do you think that's true? Do you think a, free, a capitalist society is also a just society? Do you think we shouldn't
0: be thinking in those terms? I would introduce yet a third figure, uh, Leo Strauss. I don't think any society, capitalist or not, is ever very close to just or being a true meritocracy. But for those societies to sustain themselves, they need a certain amount of core belief from the people within them that things are not so far from justice. And I think if there's any problem with the Internet and online life is that it makes it easier to see how far we are from meritocracy. Mm -hmm. People become more cynical. I worry about that much more than a lot of the other criticisms. So are things just no? Will they ever be no? Uh, Do we need people to believe they kind of are? Yes. Are we getting that right now? Well, not entirely.
1: So uh, you're, you're, you're dangling catnip in front of me by quoting Leo Strauss. You're not a Straussian, are you?
0: What does that mean?
1: No. <laughs> That's a classic Straussian response.
0: <laughs> but I think you learn today when you look at what people are sometimes afraid to say, uh-huh. that in earlier times they might have also been afraid to say what they thought, uh-huh. is far more plausible than people realized, say, back in the 1980s. So Strauss is due for a revival, uh-huh. and he's still an underrated thinker. But I don't even know what it means to be a Straussian. I don't share his historical pessimism or his elitism, for instance. Sure. Sure.
1: Okay. No, it's fair. I mean, we'll save that one for for uh, another podcast. Part of Irving's point, which I think you wouldn't necessarily, particularly since you introduced uh, uh, Leo Strauss into this, um, which may mean that the Straussians would prevent us from ever airing this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, part of Irving's point was that in the first hundred years or so of capitalism, people actually did think it was a just, society, a just system, that it was so enwrapped up in sort of the... Protestant bourgeois understandings of how one should live one's life—that um, um, you would ask people whether they thought, you know, a, a free liberal democratic society was also a just society. They would say, "Well, of course it is, because it it so mirrored the the, the larger cultural and religious mores of the
0: society." But that too was a myth. So I'm not sure what he was counting as the first 100 years, but just the rights of women. Rights of blacks, sure. Uh, how other countries were treated. I'm not saying we always do it well today, but there's a long-standing history of imperialism from Western, largely capitalist countries. So forms of injustice change. But we had blinders on in those earlier periods, and maybe within narrower spheres, there was more meritocracy. Well, if you farmed your land and worked hard, you know your crops would grow and you would do well, right. and you were more or less independent. I can see that, but I don't think society as a whole was more just back then?
1: No, I think that's entirely fair. Um, and you know, I wrote a book called Suicide of the West where the part of my argument is that, borrowing largely from Deirdre McCloskey, is that all a civilization is, is a story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And the the great thing about America was or is how we are talking ourselves towards a refinement of our own ideals. And so, at the time of the founding... Slavery was absolutely you know, the first thing you have to say about slavery was great moral evil. But the second thing about it that made it important in American history, in some ways, um, or in ways that people don't necessarily appreciate, was the profound hypocrisy of it. And the benefit of a hypo- of hypocrisy is you can't be a hypocrite without principles. And it was those principles was sort of the the sand and the oyster that creates the pearl. The irritation of the inconsistency between having a nation that was founded on the ideal of all men are created equal, and they're equal in the eyes of God, and they all have an inalienable rights. And actually having that institution, the system kind of had to work out that poison and get it out. Lots of civilizations had slavery. So I, I am with you on that. But it may violate, again, you know, the Straussian handbook to actually say we need an organizing myth. But if we don't have a story to tell ourselves that puts capitalism and the free market and innovation in a place of, of, of reverence, then we're going to lose those things.
0: That's right. And I'm trying to rebuild that story. And the first salvo is defensive. Like, look, these are the facts about companies. Right. They're not evil. They're not that monopolistic. American companies are especially good. The financial sector is not just crazy and out of control. Uh, big tech is not your enemy. So think of my book as a kind of defensive but also offensive move in this game like, look, we need to reclaim this space. I also would like to see America become more religious, mm-hmm. make a number of other social and cultural changes, but one of them is greater respect for earning money in business.
1: All right, so we should actually get back to the the core of of that point of of what your book is about. Why? Just make the the basic case. Why is um, Wall Street and the financial sector? Um, a positive thing for the average American?
0: American capital markets allocate more and better capital to rising sectors, probably better than any other country in the world. So the innovation we've had in our economy has had capital flow to it very rapidly. Some of it's venture capital, but you know some of it can be private equity or just bank loans or whatever forms the investment might take. And we're essentially the innovator for the whole world. China is starting to inch you know, into place number two. Uh, but billions of people benefit from those innovations, and they come mostly from here. And American capital markets are essential for that. Now, those capital markets did absolutely malfunction in 2008, 2007, leading up to the housing bubble. I think that's absolutely correct. But I want people to see the positive side of the picture Also, American capital markets are essential for America being a kind of world leader or global hegemon or world policeman in some limited way. We have a reserve currency. We have the ability to interfere with other people's finances, say through SWIFT. Uh, If we put on capital controls and crippled Wall Street and broke up our big banks, we wouldn't have that kind of foreign policy influence. And I know we've screwed that up a fair (laughs) amount too. But on net, I still think it's a very significant benefit for the world. Ask South Korea, ask Taiwan, sure. ask Israel. I think that's necessary. I worry it's slipping a bit. And uh, America has a pretty high rate of return on capital. American companies are the best in the world. And that's not something separate from finance. Finance is what enables that and enforces the discipline.
1: Um, what is your personal – not personal, but what 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 is your view – What is the story that you think caused the financial crisis? What is your main explanation for it?
0: That we thought we were growing at a very healthy pace and we were actually growing at a very anemic pace. So we allowed leverage to get far too high in a number of sectors of our economy. And then at some point we realized, oops, and the whole thing blew up. And if you ask, like, were not so heavily regulated mortgage brokers, A significant and negative part of that dynamic? Absolutely, yes. I think the problem, though, is better understood as society as a whole being overconfident and complacent. And to some extent, the housing bubble was a kind of messenger of that complacency. But again, there's plenty of blame you can throw at banks, and then they lobbied for bailouts and so on, special treatment. You know, a lot of those criticisms are correct. We should admit that. Would you
1: have supported? Did you support the bailouts? Do you think they were the right thing to do?
0: Uh, mostly. Now, the bailouts is a big and complex series sure. of events. I didn't support all of them. But that something be done and be done rapidly and decisively, I did support.
1: Yeah. Um, that's sort of where I came down. It was just the the unknown unknowns were just so scary that, that the bailouts seemed like the right way to go. But you can understand why oh, they pissed off an enormous number of people. Of course. And then
0: they should have pissed people off. But once people expect a bailout. It's like saying to your kid, hey, jump from the window. And maybe you should have never told your kid that. But once the kid is jumping from the window, you'd better catch the kid. <laughs> and the bailouts are a bit like that. Once there's the expectation built into the system mm-hmm. to then yank away the bailout, we, you know, we tried that in 1929. That went much worse than 2008, 2009.
1: Are corporate CEOs paid too much?
0: Not on average. Now, of course, true talent that can do everything necessary to lead a major company. It's harder to find that than ever before. You don't just have to oversee production. You need to do public relations. You need to do government relations. You need to understand the global economy. So everyone's bidding for potential superstars. In that kind of process, as you see in athletics, a lot of individuals do end up being overpaid. But there's actually good evidence that CEOs as a whole are paid much less than the value they bring to their companies. So, no, as a whole, they're not overpaid. They're somewhat underpaid.
1: Isn't it a little bit like, I think you say this in the book, you know, it's a a little bit like sports teams where you're always trying to find the superstars, right? Yes.
0: You'll overpay for some prospects who don't pan out. Right, right. And a lot of CEOs fit into that bin. They may even be good enough to run their companies, but they're in some other way mediocre. And, you know, throughout most of the 20th century to today, I think it's 4% of the S&P 500 that's accounted for all of the gains. So the value of superstar companies is quite extreme, Mm -hmm. and most companies just aren't that great. That's just a fact of life. But when the world is that way, uh, ex ante, you will end up overpaying for many particular people and, of course, way underpaying for the true stars. Steve Jobs was underpaid, however much he may have earned.
1: (laughs) So, again, I just go into my long-time bugaboos about these things. If 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 part of the project, and I'm fully supportive of the project you're trying to do of of, sort of mod, update the story of capitalism and big business, this idea, which is sort of where I began with the robber barons and Matthew Josephson and all that, this idea that corporations are right wing, which feels to me at least as a sort of vestigial sort of patina of Marxism, right? right. Um, Not really true. Uh, the Marxism part or the right wing part? Well, either. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that's.
0: Tell me why you think the Marxism part isn't true. Well, I think corporations—they want predictability. Mostly, they want something close to free trade, maybe with some privileges for themselves. Uh, they tend to embrace multicultural ideas, a kind of bland optimism, and everything's fine, and a lot of messaging that maybe we would take to be quite boring, but is pro-growth and pro-liberty in a very broad sense and very broadly pro-liberal. It's not exactly right-wing or left-wing. It's kind of blandly centrist, maybe under-inspired. I think some of that comes from how those people really think, but most of it comes from the imperatives of marketing. And I don't think either Schumpeter or Marx or left-wing conspiracy theorists really have the framework of getting at that very well. It's actually marketing people who understand it best.
1: Um. Yeah. So I thought you were saying that it's not really a leftover bit of Marxist sort of uh, thinking, but you weren't disagreeing with that. You were disagreeing with what the sort of the Marxist interpretation. Right. Yes. Okay. Because this is something I try to point out to college students all the time is, you know, Jim Crow was a lot of Jim Crow stuff was opposed by businesses because it was inefficient you know, the buses in the Alabama boycott, bus companies didn't want these rules that said you had to separate whites and blacks. You had to have the state impose those things on the bus companies. And if you look at the history of businesses in this country, um, you know, yeah, okay, fine, Henry Ford. (laughs) You know, you can find a couple examples. But for the most part, businesses tend to be more pragmatic. I think we're, the criticism... You know, and as you point out, you know, I mean Disney was invent was embracing gay partnership benefits and all of these things years before it was politically ripe. Um, the argument that I'm much more sympathetic to was a book that came out in, was in the 80s, The Suicidal Corporation. Um uh you know, it's it's another Irving Crystal kind of thesis, which is that big businesses seem obsessed with funding their enemies. And there is something in the corporate marketing mindset that says, we will buy love from uh, the mainstream media, from Greenpeace, from the Sierra Club, if we just give them a whole bunch of money. And it seems to backfire almost every single time.
0: I don't know, though. Maybe it works. I I think about this quite a bit. I'm not sure. But American big business has still managed to grow. Stock prices are at a reasonable level. We now have a 2.9% growth rate. There's plenty of ideas out there, far more radically left-wing than I would like, probably you too. But haven't we neutralized some of that? And I'm not sure we know how we have, but business being embracing and all-encompassing, maybe it's been somewhat effective. Again, I don't know, but I don't rule out that hypothesis. So the Lenin thing, oh, the capitalists sell you the rope, it's like a neat quotation. But, you know, so far, we're still up and kicking the capitalists.
1: <laughs>
0: um, I'm not one of them, actually. Yeah. But you get what I'm saying?
1: But yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I think <clears> of, you know, GE in the 1990s and the early 2000s bet heavily on a business model that was geared towards Washington, and it was at the top of the world for a while. And you know, renewable light bulbs and the the the, 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 the sort of embryonic Green New Deal kind of thinking. Now, GE's got GE's got real problems, and sure, beyond that, yeah. And so, sort of getting back to the Adam Smith point. You know, if corporations stayed in their lane and they they considered that if if they focused <clears throat> primarily on satisfying consumer demand as their top priority rather than satisfying politicians, I think the country would be better off. But once once you sort of hit this tipping point where you can get more profits by winning over politicians than winning over consumers, we get into some bad places. Why? I agree, Zuckerberg inviting regulation reminds me of U.S. Steel inviting regulation.
0: Of course. And it tends to be pro-incumbent regulation. But that said, I argue in the book that crony capitalism is a bit underrated. I'm totally opposed to crony capitalism. But I think uh, most of the problems in government policy come from voters and not companies. Mm-hmm. And I found the radio shows I've been doing, this is the claim I make that people are most dumbfounded by. Yeah. And again, one may or may not agree. But it's almost as if I've said something that you're not even allowed to think. And our current state of discourse.
1: No, I agree with it entirely. When you have Donald Trump doing, you know, attacking CEOs and saying, I don't care what the bottom line, you have to keep that car company in Ohio, he is pandering to voters. Right. You know, and that's what voters want. Voters, you know, the, the sugar subsidies, I mean, the, the Manser Olson argument I, I embrace entirely about, you know, distributed costs and concentrated benefits, I think that's all true. But the th- this is one of the things that has caused a great awakening in me in the last couple of years is that the conservative commitment to certain principles is was much more attenuated than I had realized. I agree. And Pretty sad. the sort of cronyist, corporatist approach to things, uh, I hated when Barack Obama did, was a crony capitalist for Solyndra and for the healthcare industry. And I also hated when Donald Trump is a crony capitalist for, for his pet, for the coal industry or whoever. I just didn't realize that I was as in, as small a minority
0: on this point as I thought, as as, as it turned out to be. Conservative and right wing clannishness, if you'd call it that, far worse than I had thought, and yeah. very disappointing. Um, so you have a gift for understatement. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,
1: so if, if you could run through—I know you have to get out of here—in in the sort of broad brushstrokes, what in the macro or in the micro sense? what could the federal government, what could could Congress do that would improve the overall, not just improve the overall health of American businesses, but also help in the long-term project of getting Americans to understand the role of businesses?
0: Well, I think we have far too much regulation of business in almost every sector. For climate change, I would make an exception. Finance, I think, is complicated. Maybe we have too much regulation, but we need some pretty sound and sometimes tough regulation, but virtually everything else, I would pare regulation back greatly. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't care enough about dynamism. We don't have enough politicians out there advocating dynamism as a core philosophy. More and more, I tend to you know My own villainization is directed towards state and local governments. Mm -hmm. They're worse than I used to think, Hmm. and a lot of the obstacles to just getting things built really don't come from Congress. Uh, They come from uh, state and local levels or county or permits you need or occupational licensing. And you look at how bad we are at building things or doing things quickly. Uh, State and local is probably more to blame for that than the feds. But we're in a vacuum of ideas, Mm -hmm. and we'll see how the presidential field actually shapes up. But right now it looks pretty bleak to me, Mm -hmm. and I don't see a candidate who is speaking out on behalf of business and creation and enterprise and innovation as intellectual principles connected to liberty, rule of law, and a belief in a generally classically liberal world order. I just don't see it there.
1: Um, since I have to write a big piece for my last article for National Review as a senior editor on the essentialness of uh, capitalism to liberty, um, I'm going to cheat and ask you, what is your case
0: for why capitalism is essential to liberty? And I go, then I'll quote you in the piece. It's synergy. <laughs> Every society, whether capitalistic or not, it has special interest groups nipping at its heels, trying to chomp off a bigger piece of the pie, and you can never completely stop them. There's this <clears throat> libertarian dream that somehow it all goes away if government is small enough. I don't really agree with that. The way you check that process is by growing fast enough that you can pay some of them off, but you don't pay them off too much because then that encourages them. <laughs> and you need some so- social surplus to spread around, to solve some of your problems, and keep your interest groups in check, and keep everyone on board. Your best chance of creating that surplus on an ongoing basis is private property, corporations, big business, capitalism, and relative freedom to produce and innovate. Mm -hmm. And there's no other way to do it. So it's highly imperfect, but it's our best shot for civilization continuing into the indefinite future. I like it. That works for me.
1: Tyler Cowan, thank you so much for being here. Um, hope to have you back.
0: Jonah, thank you. You My are pleasure. a challenge
1: to interview because you have such concise answers that you have to keep coming up with new questions. But it's great to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So Tyler Cowan has left the building. Um, as I said, as he was here, uh, Tyler's a brilliant guy. He's a really sweet guy. But he's a difficult interview because he's uh, he's not as concise as Judge Bork used to be. Judge Bork used to give one word answers to really complex questions. <laughs> but
2: um, but it's 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 a challenge. Should the Constitution be interpreted as it as it was originally intended by its drafters? Yes.
1: Yeah, that's basically <laughs> how you do it all the time. And it, the weird thing about Bork is it would sound brilliant, <laughs> but yes. Um. So what do you think of all that?
2: uh i think so the last episode that he was on for i think just the the fact that that was there was a um that was over skype and so there was an intermediary uh stage between the two of you and that allowed the tendency described to be more pronounced whereas this time i think you were able to get good sometimes long and maybe even slightly digressive answers out of him which is no mean
1: feat. Yeah, no. I, I, I mean, again, I, I like, but it was just I, I, couldn't concentrate on his answers as much as I would have liked because I was so afraid he would just stop at like the next sentence. <laughs> yeah, and... he's
2: very big into periods when speaking. Yeah. Um. Yeah. He, em- he emphasizes them. You
1: know, and there are other questions I want to ask him about, you know, personal stuff like, does he consume protein strings
2: like normal carbon-based forms <laughs> or something? But is he twirling, twirling towards freedom at all times? Um.
1: But uh, anyway, I thought it was interesting. Um. I, uh, um, I think he's a little too optimistic about the, the the sort of corporations embracing the social justice type stuff because um, when all the other institutions are going that way, you want some rocks in the river, and it can't just be um, from the ranks of the conservative movement, particularly when the conservative movement is is kind of going that way too, but it's its own version. But I hope he's right, and I probably agree with him about ninety six percent of. On ninety six percent of this stuff. So, anyway, so what what uh, listeners really want to hear about is the Boston Marathon. Jack, you uh, what was your what was your place? Two hundred twenty sixth out of thirty thousand people.
2: Yes. Okay.
1: Um, and your total your running time was
2: two hours and thirty five minutes. Two thirty five forty eight. So
1: was there someone who was two thirty five forty
2: nine? Uh there was someone at two thirty five fifty one, and someone at like two thirty five forty five. And I know I now have. Uh, I now know both these people's names, and they have my respect. And um, <laughs> I hope so. Both of them. Um, one of them. I in a bizarre coincidence. I I happened to like meet one of them before the ra- Before we actually started the race, when we were waiting for the race to start, uh-huh. he's from Finland. Um, and we we he was a very happy ma- uh, person, and we just. Contrary to the stereotypes about the Finnish, by the way, who are, are they unhappy?
1: Yeah, there's a was a great 60 Minutes thing about the popularity of the tango in Finland. You could probably find it on YouTube, and uh, um, and it just showed these pictures of these guys of these couples dancing in you know, well, it's bleak winter outside and. No one smiling.
2: <laughs> um, but anyway, go on. Yeah, he was he was very nice. And then I so I saw him at before the starting line, and then at, at, after the finish line, I he was right behind me. So huh. what a weird coincidence. I mean, it's just it's and just, will
1: be in the record books for all time.
2: Yeah, it's just very <laughs> strange. I, I was as I now that the results are up, and I'm I'm listed in there as John Butler, not Jack. Um, um, I was
1: searching for your results, and I but I put in Jack, and I didn't know your bib number or whatever.
2: So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was looking through the results. I was sort of cross referencing my the results with um the race pictures because I wanted to see uh, the people that I was running with in mm-hmm. various pictures at various points in the race, see where those people ended up finishing. Mm-hmm. So I was curious to see what people who I had been running with how they how their races went to. And so you mean like
1: running for the first half of it and then you kind of separated
2: kind of thing? Well, I don't know. I, I, the 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 way to figure this out was to like track cuz I I could tell based on the pictures where the pictures were taken just mm-hmm. cuz I remembered the scenery and then I could look at the at the finished results if if their bibs were pictured or were in the race pictures I could see finished results with one n. Right, yes. right. Uh-huh. Um so I could see like who these people were, how they how they were at the half, how they did how they ended up doing, how if I if I like slowed down and ended up uh, like come falling back to them, or if I sped up and caught up with them, but th- it was just weird that there was like a handful of people that I was with almost the entire time. Hmm. Um, but I guess that happens in Boston, with there's enough people that you'll end up with people who are basically running the exact same race as you. Yeah, yeah, that um, kind of intuitively makes sense. Yeah, it's just it's fascinating. So
1: what we talked about this a little beforehand, but for our listeners who, let's face it. Many of our listeners, not all, I'm sure there's some very fit people out there, but most of our listeners will never run the Boston Marathon. Statistically, I am confident in saying that. So what? what why is the Boston Marathon considered different or distinct from all these other marathons? What makes it different?
2: Uh, well, part of it is just the old Animal House point of it has a long tradition of existence. I think the first one, the first Boston Marathon was in uh, 1897, and I'm sure... Legions of people are going to correct me about this. Uh-huh. Uh, the moment I'm, if I'm wrong,
1: literally dozens.
2: Yes, uh, and they'll keep tweeting it at me as though I hadn't seen the previous one. But <laughs> uh, so to it, my world, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's been around for a long time, and it's extremely well managed, and it has now all of this whole this whole culture is built up around it, uh, not just in America but worldwide. Of like it, it's being the destination marathon, right, and all of all of Boston cooperates in in making it the experience that it has the reputation of I mean there are various uh th- like for example, probably the best example of this is the right right before the halfway point uh, when you go through the, the town of Wellesley mm-hmm. um all of the the girls at Wellesley College, which unlike gouchers I think it's still or no is it is wellesley uh still all female or not I think it is yeah so. Yeah another another fact i don't know um but anyway whether there are males there or not the 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 key uh of that part of the of the race is that all of the uh girls from Wellesley just line the course and they they have signs up maybe they'll stop doing this eventually cuz it seems kind of patriarchal yeah they like they hold up signs that say like uh kiss me if you're doing well or something and so you can like blow kisses at them uh-huh. and, that doesn't uh, seem like your style to be honest. Well, actually I did blow a couple of kisses. Nice. Um I I was feeling I was feeling okay then. I was feeling enough in the mood to do stuff like that. And so there's but there's things like that. That's just one example of like throughout the whole race there's there was never a not an unspectated portion. Yeah. Um especially like and the and the people because the race has been going on for so long, the people know what parts of it are the hardest. Uh like heartbreak hill was full of there were people everywhere. Yeah. Uh and I just kind of I wasn't a hundred percent sure that uh, I was going to Heartbreak Hill when I got there. Like I wasn't sure that that was it. I mean, uh, I was sure that I was gonna get to the top of it. Um, I wasn't gonna stop. It's like 21 miles into the race. I'm not gonna stop at that point. Yeah. Unless like my body literally shuts down in some way, but. Uh, they were just lining the. That's my
1: that's my race strategy from much
2: earlier in the race is shut down the body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> you uh, yeah, right. Um, uh, so yeah, they lined the race and they like know that this is the hardest part. Uh, How hard was it? Uh, I think it was actually I think it, there was a hill just before it that I found more difficult, uh, or maybe it was the fact that they were in such close proximity to each other that 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 uh, that was the hardest part. Um, I have run up steeper hills, uh-huh. um, but it was. Where it was in the race and um, how far I had come made it hard. Uh, but it was nice that after that point, the rest of the race was mostly downhill. Yeah. Um, or flat. But So lots of people drop out at Heartbreak Hill? I so saw that, one... I assume that's why it's called that. Uh, I think, yeah, well, a lot of people, they either drop out or they just they give up. Uh-huh. Because a lot of people... Boston is tricky because the first half of it is... Flat to downhill. Right. So many people, uh, and I know I've I know some of them, and they told me not to do this, uh, they go out the first half of the race and they just kill it. And They're yeah, like, yeah. I feel great. I'm at Boston. I'm doing awesome. I'm going to PR. Um, but they don't realize two things. One, that the steady downhill is doing a number on their quads. Uh-huh. And two, that uh, the... Um, the combination of that with a series of hills that comes in the last, uh, like, s- between miles like 17 and 21 mm-hmm. is, is going to do a different but equally painful number on their quads. Yeah. So between those two things, getting through that gauntlet, it destroys many people. Yeah. Um, and so the Heartbreak Hill, and I, to me the heartbreak, I don't know if this is why it's called Heartbreak Hill, but to me the heartbreak was seeing people Walking or dropping out at that point, really any point in the race, I just find that that's just such a sad thing. I mean, I, I not that I, I I'm I'm actually pitying them. Like I I feel very I I feel great sympathy for the fact that they could not keep going. I mean i i I would be I would be devastated if I got to that point. I was terrified of that happening to me. Like yeah, yeah. coming all this way, especially the further you get into the race, just. Then, then, having no choice but to just your your body is literally rejecting what you're trying to make it do, yeah, um, that's just very sad, and i my heart goes out to those people, whoever they are, if there are any who knows, maybe one of them is a remnant listener it's possible uh um, impossible um, but so, but the Boston Marathon's not
1: necessarily known as the most difficult marathon in the world or anything, is it?
2: Uh I don't know if it's the most d- difficult. Uh it is pretty hilly as far as marathons go. The Marine Corps Marathon in DC, which was my qualifier is much flatter. I I learned. Uh uh-huh. um, DC is very flat. Yeah. Um but yeah, it it does not the the course record for Boston is not very close to the marathon world record. It's mm-hmm. uh so it's a hard course, uh, and like the winning time for Boston every year is good, but it's not like holy. Well, yes, it is. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> it's not like there are faster marathon sure. times out there. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's it is. It has a reputation for being difficult, which I think is deserved. Now that I could, which I can say now that I've run it. Yeah. Um, Would you do it again? I will do it again, but not. I don't know if I will do it next year. Uh huh. Um, I don't feel the need there are people who have been uh running Boston for, literally for decades consecutively. Yeah. Uh, I don't really I'm not interested in in having a street a Boston streak not to be confused with the Boston streaker. Uh-huh. Different thing. Yeah, yeah. Um not really interested in that either. But I will return someday and I think when I do I will be I will have a lot of advantages just to ha- for having done it once. Sure. Cuz there were things about the course and just about the race day itself and about pre- leading up, things leading up to the race that there are only, there's only one way for me to learn what what they are like just by doing it. There was nothing. I had I was getting a lot of advice from friends of mine who had run it, but there's not there's only one way to truly bridge the gap between not having run Boston and then running it and that's to run it. Sure. <laughs> you sure. can't there's nothing you can else you can really do to fill in that knowledge gap. Um, so what's next? Uh, oh actually I'm uh, I'll be participating in a- AI has a uh, is doing a sort of team relay from Gettysburg to DC. huh uh, when is that? It's two weeks from last Friday. Uh-huh. So that's the next time I have to run. I'll probably do a little running before then. But I haven't run since the day of the marathon, and I won't it's for been at least
1: three days,
2: two days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Um <laughs> uh, But I, also I haven't don't... run since the marathon either. <laughs> there, are, I mean, there are some people out there though who are truly crazy and do things like run like seven marathons in seven days. Yeah, I just
1: was well, that guy who was raising money, right? He tried to do something like that recently, and um. It was just nuts. I mean,
2: it was like seven marathons in like seven days on seven continents or something. Oh yeah, I think I heard about that. Yeah, Uh, there is an there is an Antarctic marathon. I I I do want. I think I would like to run that someday. That would be kind of interesting. All
1: right. So last question uh, on the weather in Boston. It was supposed to be cold and rainy, like sixty degrees and rainy. Which I guess that's cold. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's the
2: question: is what is the ideal temperature? Uh, Some rain is not ideal. Unless it makes things cooler, which I think kind of happened at Boston. It was actually really humid when I first woke up in the morning uh, that, that day. And I was worried because it was humid in like 65. I was yeah, like, ugh, yeah. I don't want to run through this. Um, but but would have. Yeah, I would have. Uh, but it rained pretty hard for like an hour, uh, but not while I was waiting outside. Um, stuck out, I stuck out in the rain for very oh. long. And then that kind of cooled things down by like 10 15 degrees. Yeah. And then over the course of the race it warmed up a little. Um but other than that it was it was not quite ideal racing weather. I think ideal racing weather is like f- between 45 and 55 for racing weather for a marathon. It's yeah, like yeah. between 45 and 55 degrees, partly cloudy, maybe a light breeze unless you're facing the same direction the whole time. Yeah. Uh which that that is the case for Boston. You literally you start outside of the city. And then run into it um, from, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, weather, weather is a factor, but it's not one you can control. Last year, I mean, last year was terrible. The weather uh, it, it was like high thirties and raining and windy in Boston. Uh huh. Yeah. And so what happened is a lot of people who had been training um, in much better weather, who were fantastic runners, just dropped out. Yeah. And that's why this this uh, Japanese guy Yuki. Um, he go. he's one of these, like, Cher or Bono. He goes by, he's fine going just by that first name. He is, he's, like, a kind of a, a heroic figure in the running community because he just has a 9-to-5 job. He's, uh-huh. like, a Japanese civil servant. Uh-huh. Um, but he's just a t- incredibly tough runner. And so he he won the race last year despite not being, like, he's an elite, don't get me wrong, but he's not, like, a, he's probably not going to set a world record in the marathon. But right. because he was just the toughest uh, not out there that day. Yeah, he didn't crack, and he just won. Yeah. So Great. sometimes you just—it's so really a matter of what of what you show up with at the race day. That—that's the only thing you can really control.
1: Well, I just want to thank you, as you know, as someone who sees us as a team, <laughs> you bringing up the average athletic accomplishment for the team
2: <laughs> dramatically. Right. Right. I that's that's that. that's what I bring to this
1: <laughs> <laughs> this duo. Um. All right, so other what are what, what what other
2: um things do we need to discuss here? I've I have no idea. It I'm, feels like
1: a million years since I've been
2: doing this. I know. Oh yeah, that's right. You weren't it wasn't last, last week. And that wasn't that episode wasn't even recorded last week. So that was Yeah. And I am um, and I I still haven't
1: listened to the Barry Strauss episode, but people say nice things about it. Right. Yeah, that's a nice guy, isn't he? Oh yeah,
2: he was very nice. Um and that, so I'm learning so I read an ad for that episode too. Um, you got a lot of grief for that. Yeah, so I guess I'll just stop doing that now because I guess people don't like it. It's, fans okay. are fickle, I suppose.
1: That is that is true. Although
2: next time I have to do it, I'll just read it completely straight, and people won't won't get to hear me improvise because I just I was just doing that because I assumed that's what people wanted to hear, but yeah, they I, don't. So okay, well, I haven't heard it, so I can't I can't join in the pylon or not, but um. Um, I'm glad
1: you could do it because I really like Barry Strauss and and I think he's great and it was good to honor the commitment and, you know, and again, the reviews have been very positive. So, uh, you know, I got to keep, you know, I got to keep my eyes out on you. But,
2: right. Take right. the podcast away. What I wish I had mentioned in the episode, uh, I didn't realize, so for some reason I had this this sense that all the Roman emperors were directly related to one another, uh-huh. but they were there was actually a whole lot of like uh, assassinations and like, oh, you're my, uh, you're my, what, uh, you're my cousin's nephew. <laughs> uh, you're, you're the emperor now. Uh, and it, it, it really made me appreciate the historical authenticity or future historical authenticity of the, uh, mirror, mirror Star Trek episode where the only way you can get ahead in the, do they call it the ISS or what's the, what's the, like the, the, the Federation. The
1: Spock with the goatee where they have the death ray thing. Yeah. yeah
2: What's yeah. the, I can't remember what they call the Federation. Whatever it is, the, the only way the to evil, get it, The evil Federation. Yeah, whatever, yeah. Whatever that's called, the only way to get ahead in that is to like assassinate your superior. Right. Uh, and that's actually very, that that there is a level of authenticity to that in actual Roman history, which I thought was sort of interesting and funny.
1: Yeah, I remember when I was working on the book, you know, to tie it back to Tyler for a second, um, I think he's absolutely right. You know, this is one of my big new obsessions is this um you know he's talking about how there are these forces that are always trying to like stifle capitalism claw it back uh create factions that control sort of the adam smith point about conspiring conspiring against the public good and i remember reading for the book i don't think any of it ended up in the book it's in the great it's in the grand apocrypha but uh Store,
2: we keep that in the in the storage locker right next to episode 11 that's right that's right
1: and um they, uh, but there was one. Who was the emperor? Were basically the Praetorians just put the the emperorship up for bid?
2: Oh yeah, uh, I I forget, but I remember re- researching that for you. Yeah, um, yeah, that that did happen. Um, You're not making that up. No, I think it's kind of awesome.
1: <laughs> um, and he, I, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to him because he was a consultant, or they used a lot of his stuff for the TV show Spartacus. And so he, I remember asking him. When I was up at Cornell, I was like, so I love the TV show Spartacus, but I love it in part because my inner 12-year-old loves the incredibly gratuitous sex and violence. And um, and he he said, well, I have a soft spot in my heart for that show for different reasons <laughs> um, because they used a lot of my stuff for that show. Um, and I would have loved to geek out on talking to about that and talking about Rome, which – I think is a. It's not quite as bad as them canceling Firefly, but when HBO and BBC stopped shooting Rome in the after the second season, it was just a huge loss because that was a lot of fun. Uh,
2: we do talk about that show. A little. I I, I asked him uh, what or I asked him what his what he what I what he thought the most accurate representation of ancient rome in in fiction was oh what he said and he said he, he, he that was the first one he picked rome yeah because there were certain aspects of it he said that they're all kind of flawed but he said there were certain aspects of rome that really um were actually authentic surprisingly authentic um the other thing so the thing the one thing i wish i had asked him and i actually asked him this at we had lunch afterward is what uh What historical event would you most like to have been a time travel spectator of? Just like travel back in time and watch it. And he told me that he would have loved to witness the death of Caesar, which is also a a book that he wrote. I think his previous book, Mm -hmm. The the Death of Caesar. So I just want that answer to be out there because it's a question. It's maybe the only question I wished I had asked him.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's also a good fun podcast topic is like historical events that you want to go back to. It, maybe we can
2: replace, maybe maybe that can be our new random question to ask people. Yeah, no, that's not a bad idea.
1: Um, it's a, to do a whole show on it would be really guest dependent, you know, kind of thing.
2: Yes, that's right. Um, and I,
1: I'm not trying to be disrespectful in the slightest, but I was wondering whether he, what you, what his, whether his answer was going to be like the crucifixion um oh yeah that would have that's a tough one when you actually start to think it through yeah i'm not sure if i'd want to
2: there's so there's a fascinating um sci-fi short story called let's go to golgotha Uh about about time travel uh tourism to the crucifixion oh interesting and uh do you think uh listeners will care if i sort of spoil how it goes uh listeners, the next sixty seconds is gonna be a spoiler. Yeah, well I'll put in a spoiler siren here. Okay. Um, not too loud it scares people while they're driving. Yeah, true. Uh a, a muted siren. <coughs> um so basically it's they send tourists to the crucifixion and they're all told that they can't do anything that would disrupt the The events. The, yeah, and so like they have to blend in. And so when they're in the crowd and uh they say, give us Barabbas. They're supposed to be in there and say, give us Barabbas. But then when they, the story ends with them like doing this, and then they look around and realize that there are only time travelers there. <laughs> and so they're the ones who caused the crucifixion to happen in the first place. Ah, I like it. I mean, yeah. I don't like it, but
1: this is a fraught topic. <laughs> yeah, I could
2: say all sorts of things right now, given given our mutual religious patrimonies, yeah, could, yeah, yeah. things could get fraught quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will say, so, since I brought this up, uh, this will be, a, I promise a brief digression. Um, I'm reading an anthology of of uh, short stories that are what-ifs, m- almost all of them turning on ancient history and empires. Uh-huh. And uh, in several of them, several of them turn, are, are, are focused on what-ifs within the history of the Jewish people, which mm-hmm. I think is because... Uh, in one of them, the Jews never exist at all, or they they get wiped out um, at the at Exodus, mm-hmm. or at the Exodus. The Exodus fails, uh, and they become a like a, a tiny minority within a subject Egyptian empire. And mm-hmm. uh, another one, uh, um, which, which is kind of the a very darkly comical one, the um, Moses comes down uh, with the with the Ten Commandments and is about to deliver them, but then looks and sees the the Hebrews just. T- Worshipping ball and mm-hmm. having orgies and all that, and just decides you're not worthy of these, and then destroys them, mm-hmm. <laughs> and smashes them to a million pieces. And I just it's interesting. I don't. But doesn't that actually happen? I mean, does it... no. It... You're thinking of History of the World Part One, where Moses. I bring you these fifteen, no, yeah. ten commandments. I, yeah. I could have sworn there was, gosh, where he has to go back and. Oh yeah, there, that may have happened. Uh, yeah, you may be right. And they just like, uh, sorry, God, could you? <laughs> Could you could you make another copy? Yeah, could you run off another copy? for him? <laughs> uh, Maybe, maybe that does. But I just thought it was interesting. I mean, the 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 anthology did not set out to be like a, about a series of what ifs concerning Judaism, uh-huh. but that's sort of what it ended up being, and I guess it just sort of speaks to the unlikelihood of the survival of this one relatively small group of people through an incredibly large amount of uh, of churn of historical churn yeah. like, over thousands of years through through many empires who if you were going to take a bet as to which one would last right you would have bet with the empire right but the jews win anyway well it's
1: it's not all winning well surviving <laughs> it's surviving yeah Right. Um, um, and we should be really careful about this as Passover is
2: fast approaching right so it was um, easter i think they're they're i think they're yeah right around well yeah that's, yeah, how, they're, they're, that's they're,
1: how it works not every year because of the calendar so oh, months, right. they're further apart but um But, uh, yeah, we should probably just quietly back away from a lot of
2: this. (laughs) Um, I'm done here. Done my work. All right.
1: uh, Other than that, um, thanks, everybody, for listening. I promise we're going to get the frequency of this uh, podcast back up.
2: We have some— So that only dogs can hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, The—
1: just all these dog jokes came to mind, but I'm going to move on. Um, so we're going to try and get put out more podcasts. There you go, and um, and we have some exciting guests that are in the queue that we're thinking about that we have invitations to uh, that we are um, planning on drugging and dragging here. I mean, there's a whole range of options. Um, but thank you again for uh, sticking with us. Uh, word of mouth is really, you know more important than anything. I talk to and at some point I can update readers more on all of this stuff, but I've been talking to a lot of people in the podcast industry and uh such as it is. And the reviews, the downloads, the subscriptions, the the five star ratings, all of that stuff is definitely important. Uh supporting the podcast on Twitter, that's definitely important. But at the end of the day, um as with sort of anything um, word of mouth is the, still the best way to spread this. So if you, can, if you like the podcast and can help out in that regard or in any regard, uh, we really appreciate it. And um, I'm going to have some updates on various other things in my life going up at jonagoldberg.com in the nearish future. Uh, there's only so much I can update about, but I feel like I should at least try. And other than that, congratulations again to Jack.
2: Yeah, and thank you for just giving me whatever it was, 10 minutes to blather about my my personal accomplishments.
1: Oh, I think people are legitimately interested. and You you finished in the top 1% at
2: the Boston Marathon. That, right. This that... is the only area of my life currently in which I'm a member of the
1: 1%. You might be a member of the global
2: 1%. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I... Well, we we'll, can we'll ask Marion Toopy to confirm or, or deny that for me. yeah and
1: Marion we're gonna have on the podcast fairly soon too um so anyway thank you again to everybody uh we'll be back soon I think sooner than you might think and uh and if not I'll see you next time everyone's
2: back